What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hi, and welcome to the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm David Tainter, sitting in for Josh, who is uh, away on a warm beach, we hope, celebrating his birthday. But uh, don't fear, we have, a, we have a stellar lineup for you today anyways. I'm joined, as always, by Kate Riga. How are Hi, you? Hi, everybody. Good. Good. And Matt Shuham, a reporter here in the New York office. How are you, Matt? Hi. Good. Thanks for having me. Good. So we are the debate crew tonight, so I thought we could, we could uh, take most of this podcast to kind of Look at the race as it is now, Michael Bloomberg's uh, rise and his debut on the debate stage tonight. So kind of a lot to get into. Uh, The Nevada caucuses are just a few days away. That will be this Saturday. Um, They take place, I think they start at 1 p.m. Eastern time, which would be 10 a.m. local time. There's already been almost as many early votes as there were total participants in the caucus Last it's really year. getting up there. Yeah. yeah. Huge turnout so far. Yeah, big turnout, uh, which is interesting because with Iowa and New Hampshire, the turnout was about what it was four years ago, was, if not sometimes a little bit under. Right. Worse in, in Iowa and I think better in New Hampshire right. than it had been. Yeah. And I guess now we just have to wait and see if this is the early vote that's cannibalizing the day of vote or if this Mm -hmm. is actually truly massively inflated turnout yeah all right well before we get into all that let's take uh care of a a quick word of business do you love to save a buck by skipping the coffee shop yes of course we do although we have a couple coffee shop cups here in the office whoops (laughs) are you a do-it-yourselfer a brew-it-yourselfer so is grady's cold brew you asked and they delivered brew it yourself with grady's new orleans style coarse ground coffee blend it's designed to work in any hot or cold coffee maker and one bag makes 24 servings of grady's cold brew exactly the way you want it order online and receive 16 ounces of their famous blend of 100 arabica beans and french chicory in a receivable pouch for long-lasting freshness are you ready to give it a swirl yes of course you are get 20 percent off your first order at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM or order Grady's online at amazon.com for next day delivery. All right. So tonight we have six candidates on the stage. We have kind of the the ones we're used to seeing a lot. Obviously, Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, and um, Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg. Yes. The sort of, in a way, the I guess you can't really call them all front runners, but the, the people runners. who are the, path. the runners. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for the first time tonight, we'll have former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg on the stage, who has been spending like just an eye popping amount of money so far. Um, he's not he hasn't been competing in any of the primaries so far. He's not even on the ballot in Nevada, as far as I know. All of his time and attention and considerable money has been spent really propping himself up for Super Tuesday, where a bunch of states vote, including California this time around. Um, ton, you know, hundreds of delegates are at stake on that uh, election night, which is what March third, I want to say, Tuesday, yeah, March third. Yeah, that's 3rd. right. So, I mean, it'll be an interesting dynamic tonight. Tell me, Kate. I guess what are you kind of looking out for tonight as Bloomberg makes his debut on the stage? Yeah, I mean, something that a lot of candidates have been kind of 
putting out there as a way to stop the momentum he's been having, I guess, is that he hasn't faced any real opposition yet, like not a lot of opposition research. Um, And as this is his first debate, you know, this is the first time that he'll kind of be open to those kind of attacks. And as we've seen, even from things that have been dribbling out so far, he's got weaknesses, you know, he's not a young man. So he has said things that don't you know, he's like kind of also barely a Democrat. So he said things that like don't really pass the litmus test anymore. And, you know, he's made transphobic comments. He um, obviously the stop and frisk thing is kind of a big mark on his record. There's been it's kind of unclear, but it seems anywhere from like locker room talk to actual accusations um, in the kind of sexual harassment category. So at his comp- at his company. Right. So there's I think you're going to see a lot of the candidates coming in, you know, phasers pointed at him. I think, whereas before we kind of expected Buttigieg to be the butt of a lot of attacks, I think Bloomberg is probably going to take that role now, as well as, you know, show voters for the first time, you know, his game, I guess. For a lot of voters, even those that have been super oversaturated with his ads, you know, they're not so much like him talking. It's more you know, Trump, blah, 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 Bloomberg, blah, blah, blah. So it's like the first time you're going to get to see kind of him as an individual. Right. Making a case for his argument. I don't know about you guys, but just on my local TV stations, just my cable package, I guess, whatever, I've been seeing the the Obama kind of talking up Bloomberg out Mm -hmm. a bunch of times, sort of, it says something like, you know, he's done a great job as New York City's mayor. He's you know, I don't even know exactly. It's just yeah. sort of touting his economic record, his kind of spending on sort of liberal social causes, I guess. But and that's been all over the air. Bloomberg's whole strategy so far seems to be two things. One, um, that he has a bunch of money. And two, that he's going to tell you that he has a bunch of money using all of that money. <laughs> and so he's running an electability argument in a primary without really spending a lot of time telling us what he's going to do in a general election, except for spend a lot of money. Right. And there's one thing about debates, no matter how corporate uh, they get, there's no money on stage with you. Um, And this is uh, the chance that every other candidate in his lane has to tell their voters, don't hit your wagon to this guy on Super Tuesday. Uh, He's not going to go much farther than TV. He he can't hold his own on a debate stage. Second interesting thing about tonight, there was a Bloomberg campaign memo that was either leaked or given to Axios, and it made just that argument that Bernie Sanders is the clear frontrunner, and that all of these other candidates, according to this memo, are crowding that opposition to Sanders' lane. And the memo, I, I believe, went so far as to say a few of these people, Klobuchar, Warren, et cetera, who aren't performing as strongly after the first two states should drop out before Super Tuesday. So this is Bloomberg making an argument. I have so much money that I'm a stronger candidate than these other moderates, and so strong, in fact, that you shouldn't even wait for the end of March. Right. The argument was that, like you say, Sanders is the front runner. I think that's pretty much common knowledge or obvious at this point after his pretty strong showings in the first two states. And it looks like he has a decent lead in Nevada. And the NBC News Wall Street Journal poll came out yesterday, I believe, showing that he has, he's 
ahead of the pack nationally as well. That And Bloomberg is making the case that all of these other candidates, you're kind of splintering the delegates between them. Mm-hmm. And Sanders, meanwhile, gets to kind of like run away on his own. Is that well, right? I also think um, an interesting point that, Matt, you kind of made is that Bloomberg is running an experiment right now, which is he's just trying to run in the general. He's basically trying mm-hmm. to skip the primary right now. And this is a Democratic primary debate. You know, like the moderators are going to ask policy questions. It's not going to be, do you have the money to defeat Donald right. Trump? And Bloomberg has been totally uninterested in that. And by the way, you know, watching him kind of claw his way up the national polls, it doesn't seem to be like an ineffective strategy. But this is the first time I think that we'll see that he can't just use his general election strategy. And, you know, I think a lot of time when Biden was the the clear front runner, that was because of the Trump-Biden matchup, mm-hmm. the electability argument that he's the best one to beat Trump. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think that people don't think that so much, but it's hard when your merit is as a general election candidate to not just get bludgeoned during the primary before you ever get to the general. Right. And so far... Bloomberg's money has allowed him to kind of stay out of the ring. And Joe Biden showed what happened when you try to pull that general election strategy in the primaries. If you get beat up at all and, and voters start losing confidence that you can carry it through to the end, then right. they start jumping ship off to other candidates. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it does seem like Biden has a lot riding on tonight's debate, right? He finished, I believe, was it fourth in New Hampshire last week? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is on track. Maybe fifth in New Maybe Hampshire. Fifth? Was it fifth? Warren in fourth? Yeah. yeah, that sounds right. Um, so he has a lot riding on the caucuses this weekend, obviously. I don't think anyone expects him to be first and probably not second. Obviously, South Carolina has kind of been his firewall, quote unquote, right? He's sort of waiting for that. He skipped the New Hampshire, skipped town from uh, anywhere in New Hampshire to go to South Carolina for his... I guess, not concession speech the night of New Hampshire, but just to address his supporters, basically. Um, I don't know. Does does it seem like if he, if Biden doesn't, I don't know, kind of give a fiery performance tonight, if he slips in the caucuses this weekend, I mean, how does that bode for his chances in South Carolina next weekend? I mean, I don't think there's any way that Biden doesn't at least see it through to Super Tuesday, just from like a campaign Mm -hmm. standpoint. Because, I mean, he's hung his hat for so long on states with a more diverse electorate are going to be his boon. And clearly we've seen definite slippage in the polls. I mean, in South Carolina, he used to be miles ahead of everyone else. And like that's condensed a little bit. But, you know, he's still the front runner there. And I think in Nevada, the thing is that Joe Biden's plan was that he would come up he would start doing better when there was more black electorate specifically. And Nevada especially has a big Latino voting base, which I think he's about, never been that good with. Right. And I think about 10% of the voting population is African-American too, right? And the Latino population is maybe a quarter or something. Yeah. So yeah, it's a much more diverse Who state. Sanders has always had an edge with. So I, I would think the Biden campaign would call it a win if he hung in in Nevada. Like I think a second place finish would be what they want at this point. I think first place seems a little... I mean, he and Bernie were always kind of close in the Nevada polling, but if he were to get second there, win South Carolina, even by not as huge a margin Mm -hmm. as it seemed at the beginning, I think that would resuscitate him. Because what we're saying is right, that um, voters are splintered in the moderate column. There's, you know, so if somebody starts gaining a little bit of momentum, it's like, okay, that's someone I can go to. Because the only real person we've seen is like, 
you know, Buttigieg had those first two states, but his success has always seemed like it probably has a ceiling at this point. You know, Klobuchar had a mini surge, but her surge was into, you know, third place or something. Right. That's interesting because I, I think you're probably right about Buttigieg. It's interesting that he, you know, basically tied Sanders in Iowa. He mm-hmm. came in a pretty close second in New Hampshire. And yet we're talking about Sanders as the kind of far and away front right. runner. We're talking about Biden sort of hanging on. We're talking about Bloomberg rising. But Buttigieg has kind of been lost in that whole conversation. Why do you think I mean, that is? Yeah, I think it, it has to go to the polling that existed at the time of Iowa, New Hampshire, in Nevada and South Carolina, and on to Super Tuesday, that Buttigieg spent so much of his energy and money in Iowa to get that sort of semi first, second place, whatever it was, after the votes are still being counted, to have momentum going in New Hampshire, so that when he hits this wall of Nevada and South Carolina, where polling shows that he will not do well, that he can hang on until Super Tuesday. Right. Um, but the polling has been pretty consistent that that he doesn't make much of an impact um, with voters in those two states. So just like with Biden, it's a matter of hanging on trying to get the timing right so that the time by the time Super Tuesday hits, you can make the pitch as if you're not on board with Sanders' uh, policies, I'm the most realistic person to right. uh, make right. it to the convention. I mean, and then on top of that, I think to your point, DT, is that, you know, Sanders is the front runner. But we kind of talked about this last time. He's not a front runner by like, you know, anywhere close to a majority or plurality. You know, it's maybe like high 20s, 30s. So, right. I mean, there's clearly... A huge number of people who are either not on board yet with Sanders or who are not going to be unless, you know, he's the nominee and maybe not even then. So I think that's why this race is so in flux. And I think that's somewhere that the 24 hour news cycle, like, really makes it hard to tell what's going on because there's so much air to be filled that there is a like a hot market for writing obituaries after one caucus or victory speeches after right. one caucus. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. I mean, Amy Klobuchar came in third in New Hampshire. Obviously, that was a strong showing. I think she cracked just about 20% mm-hmm. and Sanders won with maybe 26, 27%. Um, and all of a sudden, she's kind of like the comeback kid, right. right? I mean, her campaign seems like it kind of got a jolt. She's apparently trying to scale it up and compete in Nevada, South Carolina, and on to Super Tuesday. So, I mean, and that's sort of celebrating a third place, right. like a bronze finish, like we said. No, which is yeah. such a good point, especially compared to Warren's third place finish in Iowa, which people were like, yeah, I forgot Let's, about, yeah. you know, start the funeral dirge, mm-hmm. like she's right. done. It does sort... I don't want to compare it to 2016 and Trump, but I do remember when we were covering that, that it was Cruz one month and Rubio and... Yeah, it was It was similar in 2012 too, like Newt Gingrich all of a sudden was ahead. And yeah, if you remember in, I think 2016, like Ben Carson had his moment, right? right. Everyone sort of one after another. I mean, and candidates have these ceilings until they don't. So I'm hesitant, especially with supporters of moderate candidates who do... Many of them do still like Bernie Sanders. So I'm hesitant to put a... 20 or 30 or 40% ceiling when I think a lot of people express that they want the candidate who can beat Trump. And that's sort of a circular logic. Well, the candidate right. who can win is the candidate who's won. So we're going to have to wait and see who wins. Right. So yeah. is this, correct me if I'm wrong, is this the smallest debate stage we have had so far? Six candidates? Didn't we have a five person one? We had one that Yang didn't make, yeah. but Steyer was on, and now Steyer and Yang are both off, right? Mm. And Bloomberg has taken their place, right? So Bloomberg has basically taken Steyer's place, right? The billionaire like, swapping, the billionaire kind slot. Of thing. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's tied for the smallest. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, it's come a long ways from the two night 
12 person right. stage. Well, I mean, thing. and it's also the debates have been a little bit not what I thought they would be because I kind of figured that once we got into these state debates, they would be much more you know, questions about the interests of New Hampshire, Iowa. I thought we were going to get much more niche, especially because of the participation of the local papers. But for the most part, they they have felt a little bit repetitive. Like, how many times can we get into the policy differences on health care, mm-hmm. you know, before you're like, no one knows anything because you only get 30 seconds to explain your plan. And even so. last night, CNN had a round of town halls, which they had maybe a week or two previously, mm-hmm. too, with, I think, Sanders and Buttigieg and Warren, I want to say. I'm not sure if Biden was there or not. But they keep having these other events, too, that are kind of one-off side events. And obviously, it's you know, it's a programming decision by the cable networks. They want to get the candidates out there. And I guess you could make an, a case that it's valuable for voters to see them in these different formats. But they all have been, I think you're right, like they've all felt like national debates. Mm-hmm. There's no kind of question about, I mean, we'll see tonight, but obviously there's been a little bit of drama on the ground in Nevada, right? The important culinary workers union, which represents so many people who work in the casinos, the hospitality industry, all the kind of you know, the backbone in a lot of ways of the economy in the state, if not at least in like the Las Vegas area, declined to endorse any candidate this year. And I think there was some concern over harassment from like Sanders supporters. Matt, did you follow, or have you been following any of that? Yeah, uh, just, you know, from from a distance. Um, but yeah, the Culinary Union is a big endorsement, but it's also a big media event, the endorsement itself. It seemed like they were leaning Biden and then they hesitated because of his sort of uh, how he fared in Iowa and New Hampshire. And the leadership of that union has been very vocal about uh, the harassment that they've received from Sanders supporters online. I'm not so sure what the backstory is there. (laughs) I, I mean, Bernie Sanders has a lot of young supporters and a lot of them are online and a few of them are very mean. Um, But it doesn't seem like you would withhold an endorsement from Sanders based on that. And it doesn't seem like you would withhold an endorsement from anybody else based on that. So it's tough to tell what happened other than that they didn't want to be in a difficult situation based on the eventual winner. And it's interesting too. I mean, just going back to the early voting in Nevada, I mean, tonight's debate comes after what, 20 or 30,000 people have already Mm -hmm. cast their votes. So it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't even matter as much for the kind of of the moment voting concerns it's really sort of like a rolling election day mm-hmm. which started i don't know probably a couple of weeks ago and yeah early voting i think is done now but then you know it's a few days before the actual caucuses so i don't know it kind of changes the changes the approach a little bit mm-hmm. just like a, f- a few weeks ago we collectively argued that the Iowa caucuses were just generally not a good idea. And we've said before that, and I will repeat, that the Democratic Party and cable news channels controlling these debates and making them national media events is a very not good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, so what's your alternative there? I mean, the League of Women Voters used to host them. Uh, you know, smaller statewide organizations can host them. But I, it just seems like um, it's like what... Uh, that CBS Moonves said, uh, you know, Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. I think that's what this Democratic primary is for cable news. Yeah. And it gives me a, an odd feeling. I yeah. So tonight, MSNBC and NBC News are kind of the primary uh, media sponsors, organizers of the debate. I think John Ralston, he's a uh, he's Nevada great. political journalist. He yeah. has kind of an independent 
website kind of thing. I think he's okay. he's one of the moderators. I'm not sure if his organization itself is involved in kind of putting it together, but that should be interesting. He'll have some yeah, good questions, yeah. I think. Hallie Jackson is one of the moderators. Okay. I think she's solid. Chuck Todd, your favorite, Matt, is another <laughs> another of them. Um, I'm forgetting who else. I think there's like four or five moderators, maybe almost as many moderators as candidates on oh, the yeah. stage. Mm. So that'll be interesting. I like Hallie Jackson, like John Ralston. Yeah. Chuck Todd is also a moderator. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, before we move on, any other thoughts on the debate tonight? Anything our, our listeners and readers should be watching for that we haven't really touched on yet? I, I mean, just uh, uh, to give a window into the policy that Bloomberg will have to defend, not only stop and frisk, but also the surveillance of mosques and Muslim community centers in New York City for years and years and years that did absolutely nothing. Um, in terms of national security, also just uh, unleashing the NYPD on Occupy Wall Street. Um, in many ways, this is a debate between Bloomberg and the moderates for who's going to oppose Sanders. But um, many have observed that this is also Bernie Sanders' ideal primary opponent, is literally an American, one, you know, the ninth wealthiest person on earth. Um, so I think for Sanders and Bloomberg, if they were the only two people on stage, that would be their ideal debate. And, and I expect Sanders will kind of go off on that. And Elizabeth Warren, mm-hmm. um, who yeah, Warren, has gotten short shrift in recent debates. Warren has yeah. been attacking Bloomberg a little bit on Twitter. I think mm-hmm. yesterday she made some remark about him buying his way onto the debate stage or yeah. kind of looking forward to debating him, someone who's kind of just been... Yeah, dumping same way that the Klobuchar had had a moment in New Hampshire. This may be Mm -hmm. Warren's chance. Well, and Warren also, I was kind of struck in the last debate. She went and, um, you know, uh, hung out with the panel afterwards, and they asked, you know, how she thought she did, and she had a a quite candid moment. I thought where she, you know, was down on herself and kind of saying like she didn't think she showed people how much she wanted it, Mm. you know, because she does she doesn't interrupt other people, so she tends to kind of. And she's not really at the center of any fights right now, so she hasn't gotten a lot of airtime in the past debates. And I think these kind of, you know, flu- fuselades at um, Bloomberg seem to be kind of readying the stage for her to take up a more aggressive position, um, which I think she's also avoided for obvious reasons. You know, people don't like a woman to be that aggressive, but especially as she's kind of being written out of the narrative right now, I think Warren especially you can expect to be more aggressive than we've seen her before. Right. Definitely. All right. Well, lots to look forward to. Uh, if you're listening to this before the debate, um, hope it was helpful. And if you're listening afterwards, tell us what we got wrong or <laughs> what you think we missed. Um, and, uh, and yeah, let us know. Before we move on, let's take a quick break. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right. I thought we could spend the last few minutes of the show talking about another big story, perhaps, I mean, the biggest story for TPM. And I think you could kind of argue just uh, in the news right now, which is Trump's continuing meddling in the Justice Department uh, 
prosecute prosecuting crimes, sentencing uh, criminals, basically. So the main, I guess, thrust of this story we're on right now is the sentencing of Roger Stone. He's a longtime Donald Trump advisor, confidant, and one-time TPM party guest uh, back in the day. So about a week or two ago... Justice Department recommended a sentence of about seven to nine years for Roger Stone. This was for crimes he was committed uh, of, including like witness tampering, Mm -hmm. lying to Congress, a couple other charges in there. Obstruction, witness tampering, obstruction of Congress. Yeah. It was in addition to uh, lying. Right. Mm -hmm. Something, some combination of things. Yeah. So what happened after that, Trump got on Twitter. He uh, sent out a, a missive over the over the web saying that it was a ridiculous sentence, way too harsh, unfair, et cetera, et cetera. And the next morning, lo and behold, the Justice Department rescinded that recommendation and and instead recommended something like three to four years. Is that right? It had been watered down. I think it didn't make an explicit recommendation, but it said, you know, seven to nine could be considered harsh. Right. So fast forward to this week, we are on the eve of Roger Stone's actual sentencing, it's set to happen Thursday morning in uh, in D.C. court. Amy Berman Jackson is the judge presiding over this case. And we've had a bit of signaling from Bill Barr, the attorney general, who ultimately kind of stepped in to, to weaken this sentence recommendation. He's gone on ABC News to kind of say, Trump, your tweets are making my job impossible. He is, I don't know, apparently has considered resigning over these tweets that, you know, interfere with his job. Um, there was some reporting in the Washington Post last night, NBC News, et cetera, that he was considering stepping down. What do we what do we make of this? Is this just kind of him signaling to his Justice Department kind of rank and file saying, I'm still with you guys, you know, there's 10,000 some lawyers in the DOJ that he's still, I don't know, has their backs or is kind of presiding over a legitimate institution? Or do we think there's something more to it? Well, I think it's face-saving for himself, first Mm. and foremost, like trying to show, I don't know, the media at all that he has any kind of independence from Trump, which is really never been demonstrated. And I mean, even he gave that face-saving interview uh, soon after the sentencing debacle, you know, where he said, Trump's tweets make it impossible for me to do my job. Um, and then, you know, right after that happens, you have, or a couple of days after it happens, you have, you know, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, and Kevin McCarthy sending out this joint... And Chuck Grassley, right? Right, sending yeah. out this uh, joint missive being like, you know, we are so lucky to have someone with the integrity of a Bill Barr, almost as lucky as we are to have the great President Donald Trump to have picked him in the first place. So like clearly doing the work to make sure they're being like, we're all on the same team here to make sure Trump doesn't get mad at Barr, which he hasn't. You know, when he talked to reporters the other day, he was like, I think he's right. My tweets do make it harder for him right. to do his job. So This all stands in contrast to sort of the reality check that happened, which is that the four line prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. withdrew from the case um, after this intervention by Barr and via tweet by Trump. And one of them quit the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the senators and Mr. Barr can say whatever they want about how independent um, they are. But the people that were actually trying the case for months and months and months said, we can't be a party to this intervention from the attorney general and from the president. Um, so I think you're right that it's a lot about telegraphing the right thing. Um, but, you know, 
yeah, a lot of reporters got that news about Barr almost quitting around the same time. <laughs> like so, four different major outlets. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like one of those things where Barr told his press uh, people to tell the president via some newspapers that he was making it harder. Um, but who knows if Barr has actually threatened to quit. It's interesting because after Barr gave that interview to ABC News in which he said the president shouldn't be tweeting about criminal cases, again, the making my job impossible quote that we've mentioned a few times, I think the White House put out a statement. Stephanie Grisham, the press secretary, issued like a written statement or some response kind of saying, you know, the president appreciates Barr's perspective or there was some, you know, it was very non-confrontational, not appreciative exactly, but just kind of, yep, we hear you, it's all good. And so to me, that's sort of signaled, okay, if not there's, if not coordination between both sides on this bar interview or public statement, just kind of an acknowledgement that he had to come out and say it. Again, because of the thousands of employees at the Justice Department who mm-hmm. have to go to work every day and kind of try to do their job, that it, it's sort of saying, you know, Barr needs to raise his voice up a little bit of about this, but not so much that, again, it causes Trump any heartburn well, or anything. Well, I mean, yeah, knowing Trump to be the kind of circumspect, calm figure that he is. I mean, we're actually supposed to expect that Barr is adopting a posture of independence and Trump is totally cool with it. I mean, when has that ever happened? And meanwhile, so another development that seems to be related to this is that Barr has been appointing U.S. attorneys to go over certain issues that are close to Trump's heart. Um, We saw the U.S. attorney from Connecticut um, go over the beginnings of the Russia probe. It's still ongoing. Trump apparently wants to use it as election fodder in 2020. We saw the U.S. attorney for Utah go over a bunch of Clinton stories that went nowhere. we this s- is the Hillary Clinton email investigation, is that right? And uh, uh, when we, the Washington Post picked up, picked it up when the, re- this review ended, and it was sort of some extraneous stuff as well, sort of just a, an overview of Clinton's stories to see if she could be charged for anything. Um, also, uh, the U.S. attorney out of Pittsburgh is apparently accepting information related to Ukraine, whatever that means. Just this is from Giuliani, somewhere right? from Giuliani, from from anybody. Um, and now, yesterday, the news that um, the U.S. attorney in in Brooklyn, in, in uh, the Eastern District, Eastern right? District of New York, is the point person for all of these Ukraine matters. So he's working with the Pittsburgh guy. And these are not random investigations. These are things that Trump's things that Trump wanted to see happen. Um, and the most recent development, um, as far as just politicizing the Justice Department goes, was just a footnote yesterday on this long list of pardons that Trump issued. Um, among the people listed, I forget whose pardon they supported, but um, Sidney Powell was listed as supporting a pardon for somebody. Sidney Powell is Michael Flynn's attorney. And Sidney Powell is an opponent of the Mueller probe, um, the Justi- Just- Justice Department's um, behavior in the Flynn prosecution, and uh, Andy McCabe, who uh, sort of arranged the interview in which Flynn lied to the FBI. So the fact that the White House would include her on uh, on its press release about this list of pardons, um, when she's sort of seen as trying to make a pardon play for Flynn, not good signs that this is some politically independent Justice Department. It seems like there are a lot of signs that um, he's using the pardon powers and the U.S. attorneys uh, in these various states to his own ends. Right. And maybe not the most important uh, footnote to this whole thing, but they did spell Rudy Giuliani's name (laughs) incorrectly in one of these press releases. Is that right? Giuliani. (laughs) Giuliani. Nice. All right. Well, um, 
I think that's a good place to leave it. Lots to look out for. Um, keep keep an eye on the site tomorrow, late morning, early afternoon, as we kind of dig into the Roger Stone sentencing. That'll be kind of a big highlight of the week. And join us for the debate coverage. We'll be live blogging and bringing you every twist and turn. Yeah. Anything else uh, on your guys' radar you want to share with with uh, listeners or things that our listeners should be on the lookout for? Them? Uh, this is more a personal thing, but we're Joshless this week and we'll be Kateless next week as I make the move to DC. Yeah. So yes. thoughts wish, and prayers. We wish you well. <laughs> Absolutely. In this case, in New York yes. And remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew. If you're ready to give it a swirl, get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Or you can order it from Amazon.com, just like everything else. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. See you later. Thanks. Thank you.